Hi, I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, and I'm here to give you a public service announcement about a very important nonprofit organization. Do you have a question about protecting your privacy? Do you wonder how you can fight identity theft and other privacy invasions? Each year, the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse helps thousands of consumers who have complaints or questions about a wide variety of privacy topics. The Clearinghouse offers assistance through its consumer hotline and its extensive website with rich uh, tips and problem-solving advice. Learn more at privacyrights.org. Planetary Radio is Public Radio's only weekly series about space exploration. I'm Matt Kaplan, and I hope you'll join me as we explore Mars, look for life in the universe, and fly through the rings of Saturn. We'll talk with the men and women, scientists and dreamers who are guiding us to a future beyond Earth. And don't forget to enter our weekly space trivia contest. That's Planetary Radio, Mondays at 5.30 p.m., right here on KUCI. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and privacy consultant and the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in our county. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, Investigative Reports, 48 Hour, CNN, NBC, ABC News, O'Reilly Factor, Geraldo, Montel. Uh, she had her own 90-minute PBS television special last year called... Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. And to learn more about this show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Good evening, Mari. Hi there. We have a wonderful guest sitting in the studio right with us. Right here with us. Yes, and I am so excited that he's joining us. Do you remember I read in the newspaper about the Fulbright Scholar that uh, would be going uh, right from UCI to Rome to lecture and do research on computer privacy? Well, I called up Professor Jean Sudik, who is with us tonight. And let me tell you a little bit about him, and then we're going to get started. Jean Sudik is a UCI professor of computer science, and he's an expert on networking security. Professor Sudik is a professor in the Department of Computer Science at the University of California, Irvine, and he's been conducting research in Internet uh, networking, network security, and applied cryptography since 1987. He obtained his Ph.D. in computer science from USC in 1991 for research on firewalls and Internet access control. Before he came to UCI in 2000, he was a project leader at IBM Zurich Research Laboratories and USC Information Science Institute. Over the years, his research interests included routing, firewalls, authentication, mobile networks, e-commerce, 
anonymity, group communication, digital signatures, key management, ad hoc networks, as well as a database privacy and secure storage. So he is really a a techie that we're thrilled to have with us here. In the spring of 2007, he's going to be going to Italy, in Rome, as a Fulbright Scholar to lecture and conduct research at the University of Rome on the subject of electronic privacy. So we are thrilled that you joined us tonight. Thank you so much. Can I call you Gene? Of course. Okay, you can call me Mari and him Lloyd. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. So how is it that you were able to obtain that that wonderful Fulbright Scholar to be in Rome? Well, I have to admit I always liked Rome. I also have a number of friends there, and I've uh, for several years have collaborated with a um, very distinguished colleague at the University of Rome whose group is probably the strongest in um, security and privacy research in, uh, in Italy. Uh, we've discussed this, and I thought, well, it would be a very long shot to get a Fulbright because it's typically reserved for more... Um, sort of artistic or humanistic types, you know, especially especially when one goes to Italy. Uh, even though it was a long shot, I decided to apply, and uh, to my surprise, they chose me. Well, congratulations. That's wonderful. Thank you. So how long will you be there? I uh, The Fulbright runs for four months, and I will probably stay for at least six uh, mm-hmm. to make a summer out of it. <laughs> right, and to enjoy all that beautiful art and, and fun. That's right. Now, what are the key issues that you're going to be working on in electronic privacy when you're over there? So we'll be looking at privacy in wireless networks, primarily um, residential wireless networks that proliferate so much today and keep becoming more and more popular. We'll be looking at uh, privacy in sensor networks, somewhat more specialized topic, uh, less familiar to the average person, but also we'll be looking at RFIDs. Uh, yes, the radio frequency identifiers. That's uh-huh. right. Um, and th- there's been quite a bit of noise about them. Some deserved, some not not deserved. But uh, their privacy is a big concern to the population at large. All right. We're going to be talking about that in a few minutes. So tell us, how did you become such a techie? Well, it was all an accident. Uh, I uh, enrolled uh, as an undergrad and uh, I think randomly as a mechanical engineer. I couldn't handle it past a third lecture <laughs> and just switched to a random major that... Uh, well, computer science. Yeah. And the rest is history. And, right. Uh, in graduate school, for some reason, uh, realized that security was exciting, although nobody else, uh, not many people at the time, thought it was exciting and then uh, uh, latched onto it. Well, you were a visionary because that is a huge issue for, for the age that we're in, this information age. So you've been doing research on network security and cri- cryptography. Could you explain to our audience that it's not just university students as we are on the campus, but we have people driving by, you know, in Newport and people listening all over the world. So what is cryptography? Well, cryptography is actually a branch of applied mathematics. Uh, it deals with uh, ciphers and numbers and how to scramble information, basically, and how to uh, unscramble it. Right. You know, somebody so that- doesn't want you to. That's called cryptanalysis. And uh, that's one of those uh, arts, or some think it's a science, but it, I consider it an art, that's been around since the ancient Greeks. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, it predates computers by quite a long shot. So that is what's used to encrypt sensitive information, correct? Historically, yes. It has been. Today, we use cryptography for a number of other things. In particular, we use it to safeguard our privacy, uh, not just privacy of everyday information. We also use it to uh, maintain integrity of information. So we use, for example, digital signatures that are based on cryptography, and they are used to uh, preserve the privacy, not the confidentiality necessarily, of documents. Okay, so to tell us more about um, the digital signatures and how, how user-friendly are they and what should we be looking for in terms of using those digital signatures? 
Well, at their core, digital signatures are not very user-friendly at all. Right. I mean, there's just uh, mathematical uh, program. I mean, programs that do some fancy math um, that one shouldn't worry too much about <laughs> unless one really wants to study them. Um, what they do is they they a digital signature computed over a certain document or a file will uh, make sure that the file cannot be modified without uh, somebody who looks at the file being able to see that indeed uh, the signature is no longer valid. So it is like a, in some ways, like a normal signature, like a, like a handwritten signature. That somebody tries to forge it, you know, an expert would be able to tell that it's been forged. Okay. So uh, when you find, a, what, what are we using those for? Uh, well, uh, let's see. So we use them um, for a number of things. Um, Microsoft and uh, companies like Microsoft use it for uh, updating uh, software. So every time you get an update from Microsoft, uh, the software residing on your computer verifies a digital signature on that update to make sure that it really does come from Microsoft. Uh, okay. In fact, uh, you, 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 most people, you, you in particular, probably have actually dealt with signatures hand-to-hand. -hand. And the way I would say you probably encountered digital signatures is when you installed, if you ever installed a Microsoft Windows right. on your machine, on sure. your computer, uh, usually they ask you to type in a code. And uh -huh. it's, it's a tedious process. It's about 16 digits. Right. Uh, nice. Well, what you have entered is a digital signature. Oh, I see. So, so I always thought that was some kind of a serial number. Uh, well, <laughs> yes, it most is. people think that. It is a sort of a serial number, except, right. except it's not serial, you see. Right, <laughs> it's right, not a serial. right, right. It's, it really is a, it's a unique number. number, and what it does is that the, the software running on your computer will verify that digital signature to authenticate. Right. The, the, the goodness of that uh, Windows update or whatever it is that you are installing, you right. know, that Windows XP or Vista, whatever uh -huh. it is. For example, I'm, it's not only Microsoft that's using that. Right, right, but they're a good example because that's so Right, pervasive. and another way that digital signatures I use is every time you use the web and you see the little lock in your um, uh, right bottom, hand, bottom right uh -huh. hand side of your yeah. window, uh, browser window, that usually indicates that you are uh, we call running a secure web session, right? Right, yeah, secure web, which is done over something called SSL or TLS, right. which is protocols running underneath. Right, secure socket layer. That's right. That's yes. Right. Or so, so that when you, for example, put your credit card information, that you know that it's going to be encrypted. Precisely. Well, before that lock actually appears, there is a little dialogue that goes on between your browser. And the okay. server on the other side that you don't see. That little dialogue involves the exchange of something called certificates, digital certificates. Right. And those are signed using digital signatures. So, in fact, your computer or your uh -huh. browser verifies, verifies the signature on the certificate provided by the alleged server. And if it doesn't verify it, if it, if it, if it deems that signature to be wrong, then the connection is aborted. Okay. So, you know, I th I'm glad you brought this up because I have automatic downloads from Microsoft and other updates and sometimes when my little the little box pops up and it says you're ready you know there are updates ready for you to download sometimes I'm really scared to do that because I don't know if this is spyware or if this is really Microsoft updating me you know how do I know when it's safe or am I you know will it reject it if I you know because of the digital signature like if I'm supposed to download some some patch from Microsoft uh, I'm not speaking from knowledge here. I'm speaking from, uh, I'll, I'll, let's see, let me guess how it's done. I suspect that that, that this Microsoft Update Manager does verify right. a digital signature on every okay. patch and every update. Okay. Now, I'm not 100% sure of this. I'm not, I'm not an expert in this particular area. Okay. But, I'm, but I suspect that that's what they do. I mean, in fact, I'm almost sure that's what they do. Uh -huh. uh, you asked a very interesting question, which is how do you know? 
Well, if it is indeed the Microsoft Update Manager that pops up the little box, then that's good. Then I'm okay. That, you're all right. But the question is, is that the re- is that the box that pops up, or is that right. some spyware box or exactly. virus box that pops? That's what's terrifying. And herein lies one of the one of the biggest challenges of of today's security, for an average individual. Right. Even no, actually, even for experts, right. which is how do you know? Which is exactly. what is that that last mile, that last step between the user and 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 the computer, right? How do you know that what pops up is really the genuine article? Right, and I and I'm not a techie like you, and I don't have all the knowledge that you have, and I'm just trying to use this. Because I mean, everybody has their own expertise, and the people who are listening to this also really don't know when they can trust. You know, what's coming in on, on the Internet, whether it's, you know, an update or even an email. I mean, this is basically what you're going to be studying, I imagine. Um, yes and no. I mean, I'm very interested in this topic. Th- th- this particular problem that we've just addressed, or we just we just mentioned, it, which is that user interface, that how does user perceive security? Right. And that last step between the user and the computer, um, that is a challenging problem. And um, I don't think people know how to solve it. In, in one piece. And some of my colleagues at uh, ICS here, uh, in, uh, School of Information and Computer Science, in the Department of Informatics in particular, are looking at security of user interfaces. Right. And that's that's a fascinating topic. It's not my strength, but right. uh, but right. I'm very interested in it. I mean, um, it is going to remain a challenge yes. for a number of years to come. Because the bad guys out there are are also techies. <laughs> uh, the, bad guys are, the bad guys are very, very good. The bad guys are have excellent skills. And the other side of the problem is that the average user is simply not that sophisticated. Right. Or couldn't really be bothered. Right. And will scream bloody murder when something happens, but when nothing happens, which is most of the time, they grow complacent. Well, let me say it this way, Gene. You know, there's a lot to do to be safe. You know, we we can run our antivirus software. We, You know, I... I run my antivirus software. I run my anti-spyware software. My adware software. I mean, there's there's only so much you can do. I mean, how many more things can I do? So it's not that I'm complacent. It's just that you know you're when you're in this busy information age when you're constantly on the computer and you're doing it other overwhelms work, you. It, it is overwhelms overwhelming. There is no uh, silver bullet. I, I, I I'm sorry <laughs> to say, uh, one partial <laughs> solution is to. Um, abandoned um, the uh, most popular software and um, go with uh, something less popular like Linux or Apple uh, Mac, or Mac. Uh, right. Based, I know my uh, son always tells us, hey, I'm safer on Mac, you know, and you see the commercials about uh, that. Being on a Mac is certainly a lot safer. It isn't bulletproof. Being on something like more exotic like Linux or its various other derivatives is even a little safer than Mac. But mm-hmm. then you are restricted in the kinds of applications you can run and how you interoperate with other people. Right, right. right. So one of the problems with, with having a Mac is that, you know, some of the software, that popular software that other people use, right. doesn't work that well. That's why my daughter says I, she doesn't want a Mac for her. She has to get a new computer. She goes, I want to go back to my PC. So, right. again, it's convenience versus safety and security right. and uh, what are we willing to balance out, you know, yeah. how are we willing I mean, to balance? Just to give an example, I, I have both. Yeah. So, in case my so when you're do you use your Mac when you're on the internet and your PC when you're developing papers? I mean, do you do that? Do, you know, I use my PC for teaching because, oh. um, um, well, I hate to say it, but uh, 
I'm using a certain software for presentations. Yes. Uh, and that software <laughs> runs better on a PC. Right. Uh, better than on a Mac. But for the rest of the things, I prefer to use a Mac. Hmm. Um, but that's for the time being. You know, next year it, I might change. I'm not beholden to a certain uh, right. brand or right. know, offering system. You, you also want the convenience for what's yes. best for your students. I'm an opportunist. Your, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Now, let me ask you something. Do you teach your courses online? Do you teach online courses here or do you teach face-to-face? I... Here at UCI, I, I teach. I, I have not never taught an online course. However, back in my graduate school days, in the very, very early 90s, I, I taught a couple of courses at USC, which had uh, a televised uh, program. Uh-huh. But it wasn't over the Internet. It was, okay. it was over um, closed-circuit TV. Yeah, because we just interviewed somebody recently at the University of Alberta. Was it Alberta in Canada? And it's an all-online course course that he's teaching all over the world basically on information. I just thought it was interesting. I never taught an online course, although I teach her also. In, um, but I teach mediation and negotiations, and that's really hard to do online. Yes, you amen. really need to be you know, face-to-face, but who knows? It might be coming. So tell us, um, as a project leader at IBM in Zurich, what was that like, and what were you doing there? Well, this was uh, my first sort of adventure after graduate school, and I went uh, spent five years at uh, IBM Research in Zurich. That place was mostly famous for um, having won two Nobel Prizes in consecutive years, mm. just before I got there, but not in computer science, because computer scientists are not eligible for Nobel Prizes, but this was for physics. Ah. Um, so I worked next to some very, very great people. Uh, but uh, I also worked with some very good computer scientists and um, started working, in fact, on... Um, um, authentication and uh, um, uh, authorization uh, system uh, that IBM later turned into a product. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I worked on uh, security in mobile networks before they became actually really popular, before the Internet uh, uh, became the household word, and um, later on worked on the electronic commerce. That was sort of wow. one of my... One of one of the things I consider my my chi- my, my my big achievements there is to, is having worked on the um, electronic commerce. And when you talk about elec- electronic commerce, you're talking about actually like sales on the internet, or what were you basically talking about? Uh well, let me clarify. This was ninety five, ninety six, okay. when internet just became. Started. Yeah, just became really popular. I mean, the internet existed for many years sure. before, but it was mo- mainly a domain of, of geeks and hackers right. and, and academicians. Right. Uh, but when it really hit the fan was 95, mm-hmm. 96, right. and people started uh, being very excited about selling and you know buying and selling things on the internet. However, sure. doing so securely you know, was, was a big that, problem, right? right? So it remains a big it's problem. Still, yeah. Right? Except that today we, we mostly uh, look for that little lock in the corner of the browser, and, and, and then we we're happy with that. But back then we thought that was not adequate. Because things like SSL already existed, a precursors of SSL, but we thought we needed something more special. And uh, a number of colleagues and I, a fairly large team, developed a set of uh, protocols called IKP that later influenced something called SET, which is may not be a household word, but no. it was for a long time a standard endorsed by both Visa and MasterCard, secure electronic transactions. Okay. And... Um, well, the only claim so that, to fame is that the per- per- precursor, excuse me, of SSL or no, no? It was a, it was not a precursor. It was you can think of it maybe as a precursor verified by Visa if you've ever okay, encountered yes, that one, uh-huh. which is a specialized protocol. Right? right. It was something of that nature, and in fact, uh, the only claim to fame I can stake there is that my team um, has developed the very first working electronic commerce, secure electronic commerce prototype that we actually deployed in Holland. 
to several hundred thousand consumers, uh, and it stayed in place f- from 96 to 2001 at least. Hmm. So, and, you know, that was retired, but uh, it was a real working secure electronic commerce prototype. And, and it caught on? It was easy to use or what? It was very easy to use, and the people, the, the internet service provider in Holland who bought it from us, actually bought it from IBM Research, which was actually quite unusual, because Research never sells things directly. Right. But they actually bought it from us, and they um, put a lot of software around it and made it very user-friendly, because most of security software isn't very user-friendly. Right, user-friendly right. So, so how, whatever happened to it? If it was so user-friendly, what, why um, didn't it catch on here? Uh, well, because... Um, this was a small market, in, a relatively small market, several hundred thousand people in Holland. Uh, IBM Research does not maintain software, so they were not able to come up with new releases, fix bugs, uh, and patch things. Uh, so eventually, it just sort of outlived its uh, usefulness. Oh, that's too bad. Well, let me introduce you again for people who are listening to this uh, wonderful gentleman, and I love this accent. Um, we're listening to Professor uh, Jean Sudik, who happens to be a professor and associate dean of research and graduate studies right here at UCI. And he is a guru on computer science systems and talking to us about helping us who who are not so techy to le- understand a little bit more about this. So, you know, you were talking a few minutes ago about authentication, and that is a huge issue because when we talk about identity theft, we're saying, well, they're not verifying who we are, they're not authenticating who we are, and they're issuing credit like candy, you know, on the internet and and not verifying. And then, of course, the the identity theft victims are the ones who lose because of it. And I noticed uh, you told me to go on the internet and see some of the articles you've written, and I thought the the funniest name was Authentication for Paranoids, Multi-Party Secret Handshakes. Tell us about authentication and authentication for paranoids. I'm I'm kind of paranoid after becoming a victim of identity theft. Um, Well, actually, this one is... um is um, as the as the title that you read suggests, it's kind of weird <laughs> because um, you have so as so a security researcher, you have to be a little bit paranoid. At least when you come to yeah. the office, you have to be a little paranoid. Um, so so this kind of authentication is unusual because it actually has nothing to do with authentication we 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 think of, which is proving that you you are, you are who, who you say, say you, are. you are. Right. No, this 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 is called authentication for paranoids. Is really <laughs> imagine for imagine. Um, secret agents that belong to a certain um, organization. Maybe it's Freemasons two centuries ago, or maybe it's CIA agents in Afghanistan today, or, or what have you, you know, KGB agents in Canada. Uh, <laughs> and, um, well, they, they would like to uh, meet and authenticate each other. Uh, However, if they authenticate each other, yes. their authentication might be observed by somebody. Right. And being secret agents, they might worry about somebody observing that they authenticate. Right. Moreover, they will only authenticate if Everyone is a secret agent. So, meaning right. that you, if you and I meet somewhere in a crowded place, uh, and you say, "Are you a secret agent?" and if yeah. I show you my um, badge, right, you might actually turn out and shoot me. Right, right. So we have a problem. You see, we have you to have like a secret code or something, that's right. or like I, I scratch my head in a certain spot, that's and you, right. you scratch it in this spot, and then we go, "Okay, this." That's is why here. it's called a secret handshake. <laughs> okay. So y- y- you <laughs> have to, you know, you have to ha- shake, shake my hand the same way that I'll shake your hand, and only then will we authenticate each other. Okay, so that happens on the internet. Well, uh, we're, it, it doesn't happen today. Okay. It doesn't happen today. But you can imagine situations on the internet where, um, let's say, uh, two federal uh, air marshals, for example. So I'll give you a very concrete example: federal air marshals in a crowded airport, uh-huh. okay, using wireless devices. 
Uh-huh. Okay, they would like to find each other and authenticate each other right. and maybe establish a means of communication, of secure sure. communication. However, if they start exchanging certificates or any kind of ID, identity information right. in a um, visible manner, sure. then others will be able to eavesdrop right. and detect them. Right. I mean, especially if they're sitting on a plane, right? Oh, right. Even better. Even yeah. better. If there, are, if, if there are two of them on the plane. Now, you might turn this around and say, well, what about two terrorists sitting on a plane? Right. That that's unfortunate, but you see the same. It's it's a double-edged sword. This right. kind of this kind of authentication. Right. It also helps the bad guys. Yeah. And um, there's no uh, way to prevent it. Okay. So how how does it work? Tell me. Tell us how it works. It works by us developing very strange protocols that that will bore you to tears if I go into <laughs> any more detail. But essentially. I, I, we, we, we send each other messages, and these messages look completely random. Like ah. They look like total noise. Right. Um, and, in fact, you can embed these messages in, in other innocuous-looking messages so that nobody can actually look at them and say, you know, these are two secret agents communicating here, or right. these are two federal air marshals, or the right. two CIA agents. They can't tell. They can't tell right. one another. It looks like perfectly good noise. Right. And, but it's only noise to others. I okay. See. But if both of us are, indeed agents or members of the same group, then we will be able to make sense of that noise and authenticate each other. So that is scary when you think about terrorists on an airplane. It is. It is. Uh, so, so clearly, uh, I don't. I don't want to drive this point too far. Okay. I mean, the terrorists are, are definitely this guy, but but, I mean, but they're, they, they're techies too. They they are, and they're not stupid. But but the people who would be most interested in these kinds of uh, techniques would be the um, security services, the various intelligence agencies mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. indeed send agents abroad and onto hostile environments where right. where the agents will simply not. In fact, a CIA agent even at home will never show you an ID. Right. They they. You know, I have you just met know they have the little thing in their ear. <laughs> right. No, no, they, 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 they do have ident- IDs, but, right. but, but they are not allowed to show them to an average, right. uh, to Joe Q public. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, I, I know. I got picked up by a CIA IA agent. No, not a CIA. He was Secret Service. That's right. I'm thinking of the wrong thing. All right, take that back. Okay, so l- let's talk a little bit about anonymity and privacy. So what privacy, if any, exists in our wireless networks? Well, um, especially when we're in a hotel, like we just were away, you know, for Christmas, we're in a hotel and we're using wireless networks there or coffee shop or airport. I mean, this is places where we all are doing it. How how safe are we and what can we do to protect ourselves when we're traveling? Well, safety has a number of uh, of facets. Uh, Privacy, though, so I'll try to address them in turn. You don't have a lot of privacy with with. Uh, with wireless internet, right? Mm-hmm. When in a hotel, in a convention, uh, in an airport, if you use the wireless internet um, provided by the local infrastructure, uh, you don't have a lot of privacy. Um, you hook up your uh, computer or mobile phone to that uh, wireless uh, um, network, and uh, the least they find out about you, the least, is something called the interface address. Sometimes okay. called the MAC address or the Ethernet address. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a unique address that is associated with the uh, network, wireless network interface of your computer. Mm-hmm. And on most, I think by far most computers, do not allow you to change it. It's fixed. Right. And so while they may not know who you are necessarily, they will know if you come back again. Right. And if, they, if they're like a certain coffee chain, coffee shop chain, right. that is... Everywhere, literally everywhere. Today. Right, right. And you go into that coffee shop of, owned by that chain, you know, right. 
in Los Angeles today, and then tomorrow you wind up in Jakarta, right? Then they will definitely know that you are the same person. Right. Their database keeps that. They. C- I don't. I'm not saying that they do. Right. But they certainly have the technology to do that. To do and that. obviously, they probably do. They might, because they might, uh, and they might claim that, and may, they may be right, they might say that they do it for benign reasons. Right. Like they right. want to, It'll you know, be faster the they next might time you send you a on. coupon for a free coffee right, because, you know, right, right. They, may be, they, they may have very good marketing right. uh, reasons for doing that or uh, truly, you know, altruistic reasons. Right. But yet, the fact that the data exists somewhere and, may and bother certain really people. it's not really transparent either. No, no, it's not. Um, they also know exa- w- what you do. I mean, so so at, at at the very basic level, they know that you've been here. Mm-hmm. Actually, they don't know it's you. They know it's the same. It's this computer, and right. chances the are it is the same or, person. Right, right. Because or the PDA or whatever it is. By l- most computers today are personal, right? Right. At least most most computers that move are personal. Mm-hmm. Right? Let's put it this mm-hmm. way. So uh, if you were in Los Angeles today and in Jakarta tomorrow with the same if- interface, that's probably the same person. Unless someone stole it. Or whatever. Unless I'm in a story, in which case, there you, you come upon uh, a more benign use of um, that, right? Right, because then so you can find it. Then you <laughs> could find it, perhaps, uh, and at least track it. Uh, so, so there's not a lot of privacy at that level, uh, and there's not a whole lot you can do today. I mean, people like myself and uh, other researchers uh, in the sort of neighboring areas w- have worked on techniques to ameliorate this problem, but uh, it's not, there are no real elegant solutions. So what, what can we do, though, Gene? But, you know, we're traveling. You know, we, we, we travel a lot. I bring my, my laptop. I want to get my email right. Um, I, I don't put anything on my computer that's really sensitive, like Social Security numbers or anything like that, because I'm, I'm always scared of that. But basically, I do want to get my email, and I do want to have that feeling that no one ca- is going to be looking in. I mean, when I'm, when I'm home or in my office, I have hard... Um, routers. I have routers and I have uh, hard firewalls. Hope you're going to tell me I'm not safe there either in a minute. <laughs> so, so you know, what can we do? Well, um, let's see. So, so, if you're truly paranoid and you worry about the very basic problem that I mentioned, which is yes. somebody knowing uh, that you are the same person here today, there, tomorrow, um, you can you can buy certain types of uh, wireless network adapters that allow you to change the address. Oh. It isn't, I don't know if it's altogether kosher. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know, I don't know about legality. I don't know if it, 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 it violates some standards. Okay, so uh-huh. according to the what's called the Ethernet standard, these kinds of addresses are uniquely assigned and in blocks to manufacturers of these cards. Right. There are a number of manufacturers, okay, and, and then he gives up a block of addresses, and they're supposed to assign a unique address to each interface. Mm-hmm. Now, if you go around and change them, mm-hmm. you're violating something. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what the consequences would be legally. Okay. Um, ethically, I wouldn't have a problem <laughs> violating right, that right. because I'm simply preserving my privacy. But um, again, that gets back to the bad guys using it, the criminals, yes. the terrorists, who also, they're the ones who really have that technology. And I have heard, <laughs> I have heard that, you know, anecdotal... Um, evidence or rumors that uh, drug criminals and uh, suspected terrorists usually buy a number of these wireless cards. Like they'll buy 100 or 200 wireless oh, cards and they'll keep changing them. Uh, or they'll see. use them or throw them away. Just I like they, uh, if you if you know, um, in the news in the last maybe six months, there were some, there were some articles about how 
um, some suspects were stopped with hundreds of cell phones re, uh, yes, bought uh-huh. for cash, you know, with prepaid, right. with prepaid uh, cards, etc. Right, et right. So it's the same idea, right? That terrorists right. aren't stupid and, right. and no criminals aren't stupid. And they will use the same techniques that we're advocating here to preserve one's privacy. Exactly. So they benefit, unfortunately, from privacy as well. Exactly. Exactly. So um, how private is my home wireless network? What, you know, if I'm, if I'm at home and I have a, a, wa- a router and I put up, you know, hard firewalls, you know, as opposed to software firewalls, which I would obviously do on my, you know, on my laptop, um, Am I, am I safer at home and in my office than I am, um, if I have those things, than I am when I'm at a coffee shop or something? Um, you're certain, well, assuming you've done everything right and set everything right, um, maximized your privacy with whatever wireless uh, protocols that you have avail- at your disposal. I'm not going to name names, right, but there right. are a number of wireless sure. security solutions. Some are downright broken and some are reasonably good right. um, you're okay um, you, you you should be secu- you should be reasonably secure but but privacy and security aren't exactly the same thing no they're not and let's kind of go into a definition right. of you know I, I asked people in fact I did a an interview just recently in Chicago of just ordinary people what does privacy mean to you and got lots of different answers and um, so what does privacy mean to you so I, I can tell you what um, what somebody, uh, an, an, an old professor of mine once mentioned, once said, and, and I, I, this sort of stuck to me. This was years ago. So I, I, students in class were asking him, what's the difference between privacy and security? And he said, let, well, let me give you an analogy. Security is, you know, walking around with uh, a wad of cash in your wallet and feeling that nobody's going to, you know, rob you, you know, and steal that money from you. That's security. I feel secure if, my, if I, you know, if I can walk down the street with a lot, with a wad of cash and nobody's going to rob me. And privacy is being able to walk into a store, a convenience store, with a paper bag over my head and two holes for eyes, pay in cash, buy something, come back the next day, and not be recognized. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. This, this is a little silly, but, but I think it, it drives the point home. So there are two distinct properties. So see, being secure and being private are, are slightly different. Right. You can have... You can be secure on the internet without being really private. Right. So that same coffee shop uh, may provide you secure internet access, mm-hmm. but it doesn't guarantee privacy. Right. 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 So yeah, there's yeah. A, there's some subtle differences, uh, like the, the one I mentioned about them being able to track you and see that you you you've been here today, there tomorrow. That has nothing to do with security. No. That's no. privacy. That's your privacy right. Le- right. Le- leaking out. Right. 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 Uh, security is them. Um, for example, uh, selling your credit card number, you know, or losing your credit card number, or, right, you know, right, right. having their employee lose, lose, its, lose his laptop, you know, like uh-huh, uh-huh. happens once in a while. Right. So, yeah, when, we, when we've talked about privacy before, we talk about that, some, that you have some measure of control about what information is being shared about you, you know, and, and right. that's not the same because somebody could share it and it's still secure. That's right. Know? That's yeah. right. Yeah. So you can... You can have, how do they say, you can have uh, security without privacy, but you can't have real privacy without security. That's what I've heard as That's well. That's true. So, so imagine you live in a glass house with, with uh, bulletproof windows. Right. Right? Glass house, bulletproof win- windows. But everybody can see in. Right. 
Okay? So nobody can rob your house. Nobody can burglarize it. Mm -hmm. But everybody can see what's going on inside. Right. You have no privacy, but you're very secure. So let's, you know, you had, we had talked before about, well, gee, you know, what if you're a do-gooder, you know, you're, you're sitting here as a university student at UCI, and you want to share your open network, like all my neighbors. Sometimes I'll go in and some, if I'm having trouble getting on my secure network, I'll see all of a sudden I can get everybody, all the neighbors around, you know. Um, what do you think about those people who are those do-gooder students that want to, like, have a free fall or you know what i just i just heard in the news that there's a city and i forgot where it is that the entire city is going to be wireless so that you can be anywhere in the entire city and tap uh, in you may be talking about san francisco was it san francisco I think it was planned. Yeah. at least it's planned for san francisco yeah but i think there was there another one too in the midwest somewhere. yeah um, but san Fr i think you're right san francisco too i think they were comparing it maybe you maybe purdue maybe west lafayette indiana yeah they're well, they're one of the best wires yeah so, so what do you think about all that well when the cities do it i think it's wonderful when 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 the local government wants to do it for you it's, i think it's a great thing and i it's think free. i think that's i think that ought to be the future that's tax that's tax dollars well spent okay um, but what about privacy? Okay. Now, <laughs> but when uh, Joe, the neighbor, okay. out of the goodness of his heart, decides to open his home network uh -huh. um, for everybody to use. Uh, well, I'd, on one hand, I don't have a problem with that. I mean, it's, if people want to open their network, they're fine. But they should know uh, the kind of liability they're incurring there. I'm not talking about legal. I, I'm not a lawyer. I don't no, know no, anything about this. The ramifications is the ramifications, The technical ramifications of this are potentially quite dangerous. Um and, and let's talk about those, yeah. because I think there are students on this campus that do that. So and suppose I, uh, you, you do that. Let's suppose, let's suppose you're one of those people. Um, Me never. No, of course not. <laughs> no. Well, let's suppose your sound engineer is one of those people. Uh, and, um, and, and he opens up his home network uh, to anybody. And right when SA opens up, uh, somebody can just park their car outside his uh, window and uh, tap, right. tap into the network. And, sure. you know, great. Uh, um, now, well, let's suppose that person isn't a good person. Right. Let's suppose they're going to get onto some, I don't know, um, pedophilia website. Okay, okay. Now, that's, that's something that rattles everybody's cage, mm -hmm. right? At least most people's. And uh, now let's suppose that in a few days uh, a team of FBI agents pays uh, a visit uh, to his house and starts uh, asking interesting questions. Right. Like, we noticed that your firewall or your router has, you know, this information uh -huh. and uh, let us now uh, look at your computers and see what is uh, in storage there you know and even if they don't find something they're gonna take big, it you have a big problem yes, yes you have a big problem your neighbors will be talked to you know your, your colleagues might be uh, talked right, to you know right. all kinds of information might leak about you even though you you probably perfectly innocent and you just wanted to share your network uh -huh. so uh -huh. um, if you cannot control where people go via your network or from your network then you're potentially um, digging a big hole for yourself. Well, not only that, like when people store things on their own hard drive about their finances, maybe they have QuickBooks or whatever kind of, you know, financial stuff on identity stuff on their network. If, if you have an open wireless, people could get in and get that as well, right? Um, they or, could. But and uh, even your documents. They could, but that's a different level of insecurity or liability. Uh, I assume here that whoever does this kind of 
do-gooding uh, and opening up their own network. They don't really open up the computers on that network. They merely okay. open up the internet access. Now, if, they, if their computers on that network aren't sufficiently protected, then the whole is vast. Right. Then, then they then, really yes. open themselves. And I think a lot yes. of people not understanding like you do, not being the, the expert that you are, I have seen it. I see people who have that kind of information out there and not realize that people can get in. Yeah. Or even with, uh, what do you think about peer-to-peer -peer file sharing? Well, that's, um, um, I don't have a very um, set opinion on this topic because it's, um, it's controversial. Yes. Uh, and I have, um, I have reasons to believe one way and, and, and the other, you know, for and against file sharing. I, I think it, uh, speaking as, as an academic, I think it has great potential and, and it, you know, it has been used to very um, uh, good um, for very good goals and uh, for very good uh, things. Yeah, I um, mean, if you're if you're having a joint paper that you're writing, let's say with three colleagues who are all over the world, and you're all sharing that information. That uh, that's not file sharing. That's, that's not, not peer sharing? to peer. Okay. That's not peer to peer. That's okay. a small group. That's something that's easy easy to do without any kind of peer to peer. Okay. Or without, okay. But um, I'm talking about. You know, like music file sharing, yes, tens yes. of thousands and millions of people sharing information, uh, or or doing something in concert. Right. You see, it doesn't have to be about sharing necessarily files. It can be P two P can be about doing something together. Right. Like right. Uh, SETI at home, where they together thousands of computers around the world are searching for extraterrestrials. You see, they're oh. filtering radio noise, oh. or they are trying to collectively find the next uh, humongous prime number. Hmm. You see, the, the gazillion digit long prime number. You see, that's something that, that, that P2P can help with because it essentially distributes the workload to, um, among, among thousands and thousands of computers, and they collectively can solve a big problem that no one computer can do. Hmm. Um, on, uh, nobody has resources to do in a centralized fashion. How about world peace? <laughs> ah, <laughs> that would be nice. Yeah. But, but if we go back to that, uh, to that privacy but issue on wireless... But, but the peer-to-peer -peer file sharing that, that I, I testified in Congress on this because the music industry did not like it, obviously, because they're sharing copyrighted material. So that's, that's the other side. There's always the dark side as well as the light side. And that's why I hesitate to... I know. To I, don't, I don't want to get you yeah. controversial stuff. Okay, so let's get back to... <laughs> to the wireless network. So one, one thing I wanted to mention there is even if you are very secure at home and even if you don't open your home network to um, you know, public access right. or neighbor's access, right. and if you secure the individual computers on your network, you are unfortunately still not very secure. Right. So or even uh, if you encrypt everything yeah, that's sensitive... You can encrypt everything and and you can sign everything and the re and, and here's ah, why and here's why actually okay. I, I take it back you may be secure but you're not private and here's right. why you see in the old days when somebody wanted to burglarize your house what they would have to do is case it right physically case their house they would have to walk around they'd have to sniff around look at the lights on they would have to uh, try the door open. they would have right. to try the door they'd see if the mail piles up you know right. in the right. mailbox they'll figure out when you're home and you're not when you're not but at this day and age, with, with home wireless networks, and I'm assuming everything else is very secure and, mm -hmm, and your computers are secure, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. somebody can sit outside your house without really getting out of the car or some little van and, and, and merely monitor the, the wireless traffic that is, that is going on inside your house. And you see, it's very easy to find out when somebody's home. Right. Because all of a sudden... Kids are home and computer, you know, and somebody's starting using games, and there's, there's a lot of traffic coming out for the for the firewall. And if somebody's not home, the traffic is much more regular, less bursty. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what I'm trying to say, I don't wanna, I don't want to you know sound tr truly paranoid, but but it, but um, it is very very easy 
to monitor traffic. Mm-hmm. Traffic that is secure, but just right. to, to monitor traffic to see what's going on inside the house. Right. Are there people in? Uh-huh. How many people are in? How many computers are talking? Right. You see? So uh, that, that's scary. But I think the scarier part that you talked about is really that somebody getting on the Internet and doing things, even terrorists going yes. in and doing things, and then you get blamed for what they're doing. I, you know, I think that, that And the issue. burden of proof would be on you. Exactly, exactly. So l- let me introduce you again real quickly, too, that we are here with Professor Jean Sudik, who is a, the Associate Dean in re- of Research and Graduate Studies at the University of California in Irvine, right where we are. And he is a real guru and king of computer science, and he is... Uh, a, a real high-techy person to explain to us, and, and I hope you don't think we're too stupid just sitting here trying to ask you these questions. All right, so Not at all. what about uh, Internet connections, cable versus DSL and dial-up? What is the safest one to use? Well, funny. of course, you didn't include wireless there, right, because wireless ne- networking is not that safe, as we just discussed. Right, right. Uh, but, of course, how you connect to the uh, Internet outside of your home, yes, we do have these mainly three choices today. There's also satellite, right. um, um, but it's right. less popular, I suspect. Uh, is it a lot I, more expensive? Satellite? You know, I, I don't know if it's if anybody's using these days. I know several years ago people were using satellite t- uh, for, you know, they would use satellite for downloading and then phone lines for uploading information. So it was mm. called, it's an asymmetric uh, channel. I don't know if anybody's using it today or if many people do, but most people use DSL um, and, and cable. Right. I don't have a lot to say about their relative security. I think they're roughly, they're equally secure or right. equally insecure. Certainly, um, one can always tap a telephone line, right? If you know, We've seen that in movies when it right, actually right, does, right. does happen in real life. I mean, it does take some effort, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, your average uh, hacker isn't going to tap your line, whether it's a cable or, or, or DSL uh, or a phone line. So... Um, you are more secure that way than you are in, say, in a, in a wireless network. Right. Either um, one of those are safer. And then of those, uh, maybe cable a little bit because of the fact that you, you can't tap into the cable in the same way? Most most lines today are fiber optic. Okay. And fiber optic lines are notoriously difficult to tap. Not impossible, oh. but difficult to tap uh, okay. into. Um, wired networks are possible to type. T- so, so some people, even at home, instead of because they're paranoid about wireless or they don't mm-hmm. accept the technology, they still use the wired, what's called Ethernet. Uh, right. Wired Ethernet. And uh, that means that you have fixed number of ports where you can plug in computer. Right. And uh, also, so there you are more secure than with the, wire- with the wireless network, or at least more private. Right. Maybe not more secure, but more private. You're also a little better um, protected against something called denial of service attacks. And uh, that's something I should have mentioned earlier, but that's that's a, that's a problem with wireless networks. You see, somebody can sit outside your house and jam your wireless router. Okay. You see, they can jam it with a wireless device. And there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, you can come out and look around if somebody is sitting there and doing it, but you might not always be able to see them because, you know, let's say you, you don't live in Irvine or Newport, but you live in a large apartment building in New York City. You might not be able to see who is actually jamming you, you see. Right, so right. So all they need to know is your interface address. It could be jamming your router and preventing you from communicating. With a wired network inside your house, it's unlikely that that would happen, right? Mm-hmm. That somebody actually physically have to has to find a, 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 a place to plug in a, right. um, their computer to, to jam. But so. even at home, I mean, I know that we have wireless so that you could be in any room, all right, and you don't have to be connected even though... Right, the wirelessness wirelessness gives you that wonderful ability to walk around and you know take it to a Mobility, closet, take yeah. it to the bathroom, take it to. You know, I, I, I've seen I, I've seen people my sitting in jacuzzis. My, uh, yeah, or uh, sit outside in the backyard or yeah. whatever. I've seen people in jacuzzis here in in, you know, in, in my neighborhood.
who's you know tapping away on 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 the internet. Right. So that's wonderful, right? You don't have to lug in lug wires with you. Right. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you open yourself up to nasty uh, things like uh, denial of service, right. loss of privacy. Interesting about the denial of service, which again you think about in this world of crazies, they could really jam. I mean, the bad guys could really jam things up, and like universities. Yeah. Somebody could do that here. Somebody could. Somebody could. Uh, it's not that easy to do it at a. On the, uh, at the university. It's much easier okay. to target, let's say, somebody like uh, like me or you right. uh, at home and just simply, um, what's called, uh, machine gun the router. You know, right. see, keep denial of service uh, yeah. prevented from communicating, essentially. But how about it. those cities like San Francisco and, and you were talking about Purdue and all these cities that are planning to be totally wireless. So, so don't those issues of wireless uh, affect a whole city? I mean, the whole city could go down if everybody's reliant on that? Well, no, n- not quite because, you see, I suspect that cities like San Francisco and, and others, they will put enough wired infrastructure. You see, not everything is going to be wireless. Okay. What, what, what will be wireless is what we call the last hop. So you see, you will be walking around the city, Market Street, right, in San Francisco, okay. and carrying your PDA or laptop. And you'll be communicating actually not to the satellite or not to some to some device far away. You'd really be communicating to something mounted atop the nearest light pole or in, in the nearest uh, building. And from then on, it's all wired. I see. Okay. So so that it's it, more protected than that way. It's more protected. It's just a, it just also has more capacity. So you cannot really mount a denial of service attack against uh, you know a, a larger capacity wire. Right, because they're wired in so many yes. different places. It's almost like it reminds me of a cell phone where you have all the different cells. Exactly. It is. Yeah. It, it is in fact very similar to a cell phone and and what they call it sometimes is a mesh network. So you can mm-hmm. imagine that the cities are you know uh, like a grid, right? Mm-hmm. Planned right. cities are like a grid, right? Sure. And you'll have you'll have on every corner you'll have a, a what's like a base station right. like cell phones have a, you know a cell tower right and here you would have some point of connection access see, point. Now, see as a privacy person as a privacy person it kind of scares me because it reminds me of like how people can see where you're going at, by your cell phone or gps yes and and again that issue of yeah you might be secure because it'll be wired but you won't be private because as you go through that as you said we each have every pda or whatever has its own address we could be tracked where are we going that's you right know? and in fact i didn't want to make it seem like this wireless problem that we're experiencing with privacy in coffee shops is actually unique it's not right. it's been around since the early 90s not in the united states because we're quite late in adopting what's called gsm the okay, GSM, sta- GSM? This cell phone standards. Okay. Is, uh, I think they, it deciphers as uh, uh, Global Mobile System or something. It's a French acronym, anyway. Okay. So GSM is most of us, uh, most population in the world you, who, use, who uses cell phones, uses GSM. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I use my cell phone all the time. Sure. I go to a different country. I go to a different part of the U.S. I turn on my phone, and it works. Right. Well, it works by registering with a local cell yes. service provider. And what it does, actually, it exchanges or it actually exp- uh, let, lets the local service provider see its unique identifier. You see, it's not the it same kind of... It registers you wherever that's you right, go. That's right. And uh, it, it exposes something called IMC, International Mobile Subscriber Identifier, which mm-hmm. is something inside that little SIM card in right. your cell phone. So you might know... Do you know what a SIM card yes, is? I yes, I do, because that's yeah. how I get all my exactly. addresses from in my phone numbers right. from one phone to another. Precisely. I take the SIM card out and put it into the new one, right? So that SIM card has an I- identification number, which is not unlike that Ethernet or, or interface right. address and wireless networks. It, I, it is unique. It cannot so be changed. So the terrorists, the bad guys, probably have a million of those. 
Right. I hope not, but I'm sure they Probably, do. Probably, yeah. I'm sure they do. And they f- and they 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 have disposable phones basically. They'll right. use it for for a little bit and throw it away. Yes. And uh, in the, in the United States you can't, but in some European countries you you can buy in a, like a like a tobacco kiosk. You can buy prepaid uh, SIM card. It has mm. no it's no it's, 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 it's no tie to you. you. When you buy it, you don't show any ID. You right. don't subscribe with a so with it's a like provider. a like a phone card almost. It's like a phone. It looks like a SIM card, like the one you have. Yes. Except yours is tied to you. But that really does provide privacy. Because yes, but it also helps these bad guys. Yeah, it does. It does. Yes, and and this, you see, the, the privacy is, is a big problem. But uh, as as I mentioned before, and as I'm sure you agree, it's a double edged sword. It is okay. So that kind of leads us to RFIDs, and we've had um, several discussions on the show about RFIDs. We've had on uh, Catherine Albrecht, who wrote the book uh, Spy Chips, and as if you know anything about her, you know that it's pretty terrifying for her because not that RFIDs are uh, so horrible in themselves, but it's the lack of any kind of safeguards that we have right now. So let's let's talk about RFIDs because a lot of people don't realize that they're already using them. You know, when we go on that toll road on the 73, that's an RFID, right? Precisely. It's a it's a big fat one, but it is an RFID. It's a transponder most people use for, for toll roads. And, right. Uh, um, yes, you can be tracked with those, but um, the good news is that you know when you have one. You see, you don't. Well, on those you do, yes, but yes. not on the ones that are what right. as big as a, a, the piece of sand. Uh, well, the grain of rice, the, the right. ones that people get, you know, in, can implant. You know, you can buy a kit and get it implanted um, under your now, skin. Now you wouldn't do that, would you? I wouldn't do it, but <laughs> some people in some people have done it. Uh, there, there's some bars, and you may have seen like some some. Yes, it was it? in Mexico that these uh, prosecutors in Mexico had RFIDs. That's right. Right? Because no, no, no. It was a members of a special um, police uh, force that yeah. had these RFIDs uh, to enter the secure area. Yeah, building it was, or the, it was like. the, right. the prosecutors. Yeah. Or maybe, or maybe, maybe you're right. Yeah. And, so that and they then. Get into the courthouse, and then they wouldn't have to show anything. And, they just go right in. Frequent drinkers in a particular bar in Barcelona, in Spain, <laughs> would get those, uh, so they could like wave their hand um, in front of the cash register. Because they couldn't, pay. they're too drunk. <laughs> to well, they could pay for drinks like that. And in fact, just two days ago, I saw one of those crime shows, like CSI Miami types, which yeah. had exactly this uh, this technology. I and mean, I think they took it from the from the right. the bar in Barcelona. Right. Uh, so they they showcase this. Okay. So tell us, yeah, Lloyd is telling us we don't have a lot of time. We really need you to come back before you go back anyway. But but so tell us about the RFIDs. What are you thinking about these things? I think this is, we're going to see more and more of this in, in uh, you know, passports, uh, the smart cards for um, driver's license, the real ID. I'm not worried. Uh, and here I probably would disagree with a number of my colleagues. I'm not worried about uh, RFIDs and passports as much as I'm worried about RFIDs and um in shoes and underwear and in uh, clothes and, and you know in, in all household articles that 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 are not visible you see yeah, that are not RFIDs yeah. in transponders and in passports um, in driver's licenses do not worry me because we know when we have them and we know when we want to activate them so technology is here whether whether the government makes you good use of it or not I don't know but the technology is here to make RFIDs and passports for example very safe you could uh, you can make it reasonably cheap so that a passport essentially has a, what's called a Faraday cage mm-hmm. inside it, a thin uh, ring of metal, you know, bendable, you know, pliable, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that it's still a passport much the way we know it. But that that Faraday cage protects the RFID chip inside the passport, so it can only be read when the passport is open. And when is it open? When we open it and give it to our immigration but, but agent. But how about, it, can it be read from 
very far away. I mean, that that's another thing. It should it only be, be read by certain readers. I mean, we need to have those right. safeguards. We need to, but, but mind you, you see, when do you open your passport? Only in certain controlled circumstances. When somebody uh, is, who clearly has authority, like an immigration agent in the airport, asks you to open a passport, you open it then. Otherwise, you keep it closed, and when it's closed, it cannot be read, at least if you, if you have this kind of a Faraday cage built in. Same with driver's license. So the problem is with these little RFIDs that, you know, you may have in color of your shirt and, may, and not right. know about it. And most of us, rightfully, are, well, most of us who know about these things are rightfully worried about our privacy. Right. Um, and, you know, what is what, what are our clothes telling telling others about right, us? Right, you know? right, right. And, and how are they following us? That's I right. I mean, you know, are we being tracked with everything we do? My only concern with the Real ID Act and, and the Passport Act is that, yes, it, you're right. There at least is transparency. We know it's being done. My concern about is, like, who else can read how far away? I think that right. was some of the issues of... Can they make it more secure that it can only be activated uh, with a certain type of reader? I mean, is there any kind of technology coming like that? Yes, yes. I think that's the good news is that the uh, manufacturers, um, I think places like National Semiconductor, SD Micro, et cetera, et cetera, have worked on, on this kind of technology, and, and, and the researchers have looked into it. And, and you see, one of the biggest problems with RFID is price. You see, manufacturers don't want to pay more than a fraction of a cent, but most of us will probably not scream bloody murder if we have to pay five dollars more for our passport or driver's license so you see that allows that's kind of a one-time thing every few years yeah that's right yeah but 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 i see a one cent increase on the cost of an rfid chip that is in every sock or every shoe that's a problem for the manufacturers and they're not willing to spend although you know for them they're probably saying wait a minute it's going to cut down on so much of our worries about inventory because we don't have to keep having somebody to go in there and inventory it so in the long run it's going to save us money and i think that's how they're selling it is this is this is the end all to save us you know from the inventory we're not going to have waste we're going to know where everything is true and and lloyd is giving us the high sign so before you go to to uh to rome um, just tell us here, so what do you think is going to be the most important issues uh, for you to study and for you to deal with in the coming years in dealing with privacy? Uh, that's a, that's a, that's tough a heavy one. thing that Lloyd that's says you only have one. a minute. <laughs> <laughs> that's a tough one. So I think RFID, secu- RFID privacy is going to be a problem, uh, an interesting problem. And you know, if there are no interesting problems, I, I don't have a, a job anymore, you right, see, right. or I have to change. Uh, I, that will be. And uh, the one we talked about earlier, uh, the human uh, the human computer in- security interface. How right. do humans perceive security? You see, if there was a way that you, I could convince you that your RFID chips, whatever they might be on your on your body or, or being carried by, can be turned off at will. If I could convince you they can be turned off or deactivated, wouldn't you? I would benefit? feel safer. You would feel safer. Yes, because and, that gets back to yeah. control over your information. And therein lies one of the biggest challenges, and I hope to work on, on some of that. Oh, well, we are so excited that you're getting to go. Maybe we'll have to interview you when you're in Rome. But thank you. We have been listening to uh, a wonderful professor here at the University of California, Irvine. I'm so pleased that we actually have uh, him with us today in the studio. You've been listening to uh, Dr. Gene Sudik.
and he is a professor and associate dean of research and graduate studies here at the University of California in Irvine, and he is a guru on computer science and systems and a wonderful professor. I wish I could take one of his classes. He's, he's so exciting, and we'll have him back. And you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. And please visit us at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy to see our wonderful guests, listen to our interviews, download our podcasts, even subscribe to them. Thank you, Lloyd, for being a great engineer and patient with me. And see you next week from 5 to 6 p.m. right here at KUCI. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.